0: Open your Bibles, if you would please, to Psalm 137. Psalm 137. Psalm 137. In 1971, Don McLean released an album, American Pie. The title song became a number one song on the charts for four weeks. The last song on the album is entitled Babylon, and it's based on verse number one of Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon... The waters of Bab- or by the waters, the waters of Babylon, we lay down and wept, and wept for thee, Zion. We remember thee, remember thee, remember thee, Zion. Actually, the year before, Rivers of Babylon, a Rastafarian song, was written and recorded by the Melodians. It's based on verses 1 through 4. And by the way, it is, has been theorized that this was how reggae began its entrance into mainstream music in the United States. In the musical Godspell, there's a song on the willows, and it's based on verses 2, 3, and 4 of Psalm 137. Matashiyahu, uh, during his Hasidic days, had a song entitled Jerusalem, which is based on verses 5 and 6. He switches the verses and he says, Jerusalem, if I forget you, fire not going to come from my tongue. Jerusalem, if I forget you, let my right hand forget what it's supposed to do. It's really interesting, though, that very few people have written any songs based on the last stanza, verses 7, 8, and 9. Some hymns avoid it as well. It's been noted that a lot of musical settings omit the last part. John Bell, who has written a number of hymns himself, has said that the final verse is omitted because of its seemingly outrageous curse. Uh, This is better dealt with in preaching or in conversation. Um, But he goes on to say it should not be forgotten, especially by those who have never experienced exile, depression or disposition or the rape of people and land. In older hymnals that have the Psalms, like the Scottish Psalter of 1650, uh, we hear all of the verses from Psalm 137. What am I talking about? Well, let's read Psalm 137 and get you a sense. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried, tear it down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is he who repays you for what you have done to us, he who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. We've been looking at the Psalms and prayer and seeing that they train us how to pray, how to respond to God who began the conversation, to use the right language, the appropriate language in prayer, to recognize the place of story or life experience in prayer, to understand the place of rhythm. And last week we saw the place of metaphor in our prayers. And this all sounds wonderful until we come to verses 8 and 9 of this Psalm today, particularly verse 9. And at this point, I think we might be severely tempted to turn away from allowing the Psalms to affect us or impact us in any way, let alone in our prayer lives. But wait, let's stop and think a minute. What what do we imagine that prayer is? Do we see it as a way of releasing tension, you know, reducing tension, getting rid of stress, uh, allowing us to live longer, healthier lives, uh, allowing us to be calm and Poised? Is that what we imagine prayer is about? If that's what you think prayer is, then the book of Psalms is not for you. Um, The prayers that we find in the book of Psalms tell us that the way that things are, and we find that the way that things are is not very good. That, in fact, it's quite bad. Evil is encountered, wickedness is confronted, adrenaline gets pumping. People get excited, they engage or are about to engage in an act of war because prayer is in fact combat. There is a place for harmony. It's not all blood and guts if you wish. But remember we, we are told of the Lord wrestling with Jacob at Peniel and Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane where he sweat as it were great drops of blood. Peterson in his book on the Psalms uh, and prayer says that people who are looking for a spiritual sedative don't pray the Psalms, or at least don't pray them for very long, because that's not what you're going to find in the book of Psalms. As I've told you before, uh, for some time now, I read through the Psalms every month, five every day, and I read through them every month. And it's very clear that the number one subject in the Psalms is God and God's glory. Um, but you know what comes in a close second? Enemies. The enemies of the psalmist. And I find myself bothered and disturbed from time to time because I don't think I have any enemies, and if I do, I don't think I have that many, that, that they would be like number two in my prayer list of things to pray about. So why is it, that the book that is supposed to teach us how to pray, how to be in conversation with God, we listen to him as he speaks to us in his word, psalms that are concerned with God, that without warning, just out of the blue, we find mention made of enemies and really a preoccupation with them and what we should do to them. One would imagine that if you are in the presence of God and thinking of God's power and God's salvation, that everything else should sort of shrink into insignificance. If, if the whole world was, was made up of your enemies, but if you're in the presence of God, then that that would not just sort of fade away into oblivion. Shouldn't the realities of God's mercy transform our impulse to retaliate into something that makes us love everyone, including our enemies? I think people imagine that a life of prayer makes us nice and that we are nice with everyone, that we are we have this sort of camaraderie with everyone, we would be so secure in God's grace that we would view everyone quite cheerfully. But reason doesn't guide us in a life of prayer. When we look to the Psalms as our guide, we find that we find people that pray have a lot of enemies. And they spend a lot of their time praying and dealing with them. Personally, we might prefer that it was not this way. And in fact, our preference would be to probably cut out these verses, these portions that are so negative. Clearly, Psalm 137 is on everybody's list for revision. It is, as one person calls it, the scandal of the Psalms. The psalmist prayed while Judah is in exile. They've been taken out of their homeland and they've been taken to Babylon. A pagan capital. There are three stanzas in this song verses 1 through 3, uh, 4 through 6, and then 7 through 9. The first two stanzas, I think, are deeply, profoundly moving. Um, in the first stanza, we have the loneliness of exile. The Jews are taunted by their captors, the Babylonians. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remember Zion. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors delighted or demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. Without question, there is a deep humiliation here and deep pain. In the second stanza, the sorrow is even deepened, where silence seems to be the only dignity allowed to the Jews. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? So, in these two stanzas, we hear loss and rejection and violation. And they are put into such a poetic form, I think, as to almost cause us to weep with them, even though this centuries later, when we read, it's been centuries since this happened. And it may, in fact, be that when we read these verses, it brings us to our knees as we weep for them and for ourselves. We are deeply moved. But then we come to the last three verses. The third stanza. Remember, O Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried, tear it down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is he who repays you for what you have done to us, he who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. We saw when we began this series that Psalms 1 and 2, in a sense, are an introduction. They pave the way, they point the way. This is what prayer is supposed to be. Psalm 1 begins with blessed and Psalm 2 ends with blessed. The last sentence begins with blessed there. Psalm 1 tells us that we are to have the practice of meditating on God's word. We read what God says. And if you read the first five books of the Old Testament... This is what God said. This is how people are supposed to live. These are the things they are not supposed to do. We are to listen as God speaks to us. And the person who listens and who meditates and who answers in prayer is blessed. In Psalm 2, it points to the practice of waiting for the Messiah, messianic expectation. For us, we're waiting for Jesus to come back. He has already come the first time. But for the psalmist, he had not yet come. And so there was a sense that God is in fact acting in human history and one day God's anointed will come and he will make things right. Don't be freaked out by the bullying of the society around us, the persecution that may happen. The person who trusts that one day Messiah will come is truly blessed. So blessed is the one who meditates And blessed is the one who waits with expectation for the coming of the Messiah. In Psalm 137, in verses 8 and 9, we find the word blessed, but it is uh, translated as happy. And I think perhaps the translators are a bit nervous about uh, putting the word blessed there, but in Hebrew it's the same word. Happy is he who repays you, or blessed is he who repays you for what you have done to us, Blessed is he who dashes your infants or seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. And what we find is blessed is used for those who meditate, and blessed is used for those who are waiting for the Messiah to come. And now we see that blessed is also used for those who denounce their enemies. Peterson, in writing about this, says, This is pure hate. Nothing in the preceding lines of Psalm 137 has prepared us. For this, So, who let this in to the book of Psalms? Because as we've seen, the book of Psalms is compiled uh, much after the time of David. We have editors who put it all together. Um, Why did they leave these verses in? And shouldn't we take them out? The reality is, a number of prayer books and a number of hymnals and worship books that are based on the Psalms have taken these verses out. Because these verses are highly offensive to them. Peterson, interestingly enough, calls them psalmectomies, um, that they've cut out the portion of the psalms that they find offensive. But they're mistaken in doing this. They are mistaken and they are wrong because our hate needs to be prayed, not suppressed. Hate is our emotional link with the spirituality of evil. Evil does exist. Hate is an explosion of outrage. And the people who sing 137, who wrote it, are outraged at what has happened. The holiness or the wholeness of one or more has been violated. But hate makes us nervous because it's also the ugliest of our emotions. And it is the most dangerous. In fact, we have in our legal system a whole category designated as hate Crimes, Because out of hatred, terrible things are done. And so we're embarrassed by our hatred and prayer doesn't seem an appropriate context. It doesn't seem to be the place where hate should be allowed to enter in. So instead we deny that we hate anyone or anything and we try to suppress it. But if we do this, we have failed, I think in a big way. And as a result, our hatred can easily morph into the evil that we hate, the thing that we are responding against. If we do not pray our hate, and I would argue that we are to pray our hate as the psalmist does here in Psalm 137, that we have lost an essential insight and energy in doing battle against evil. It simply becomes a matter of physical action or of mental action, but there's nothing of prayer that enters into the picture. Let's face it, to be dishonest in prayer comes, I think, pretty naturally to us. We don't need anyone to edit our prayers. I mean, our prayers, I think, are fairly dishonest right off the bat. I think we should be thankful for the editors who had the courage to leave these verses in the book of Psalms. But why did they? Why did they? Because a life of prayer takes us into a difficult country. A country in which we become aware that there is more evil in the world than we ever imagined. And that it is deeply ingrained into the things of the world. We didn't know things were this bad. Our minds and emotions are not prepared to deal with this. I think part of it is because the way we look at the world is we sort of have this grid of moralism, of you know, right and wrong, and so we sort of sit back and make judgments that are oftentimes cool and detached. You know, we, we don't really get involved with them. And deep down, if we're not careful, if we'd be honest, oftentimes those who are the victims of evil, somewhere in our thinking creeps the thought, yeah, I, they were asking for it. They got what they deserved. In the long run, people reap what they sow. The Psalms will not allow this. It will have none of it. Yes, there is a moral structure to life. But our work is not to sit in judgment, or judgmental moralism. Rather, we are to grapple. We are to wrestle. We are to fight against evil. And in prayer... If we've been listening to God in his word, in prayer, we come to identify what is wrong, what is evil, who is the enemy. And we are to respond and the psalmist respond in outrage. They hate what they see on behalf of all the dispossessed, the mocked, the dehumanized of society. And they cry out to God. Look at this. Look at what's going on. You see, the hatred that we find here isn't just this ugly, murderous, dark emotion, but it actually comes out in the context of meditating on God's word. It's not just like, I I kind of find that offensive. No, this is what God says is right. And God says, I'm holy, this is what's right, and this is what's wrong. And as we focus on God's word, then we see what is evil, then we are just outraged, or we should be. And when we think of the coming of the Messiah, for the psalmist, his first coming, for us his second coming, we look for things to be made right because things are not right as they should be right now. You know, I think it's possible that you could sit down in a chair for two or three hours and say, okay, before I pray today, I'm just going to think about all the terrible things, all the suffering, all the cruelty that's going on in the world. And your mind would be filled with all this knowledge, but in some ways you would be detached from it. But I think in prayer, as we respond to God, we see things more clearly than we ever have before the utter vile sacrilege of enemies who violate God's creation who brutalize women and men those who are made in the image of God and we come to see that the amount of suffering in the world is epidemic because people in fact are evil and much of it I think is sort of covered over by polite language if you wish, conventions and on television, I think it's very much sort of mitigated by commercials. I remember Osgin is saying years ago that there's nothing so horrible, so horrific, so dehumanizing that you can see on the evening news that it can't be followed by a commercial from Burger King. You know, that we, we hear these horrible things, but then it's just sort of it's simply set aside by advertising. But in prayer, we see it and we hate it. In the same way that the usual human experience oftentimes brings us to our knees, asking God to help us, I think hate frequently should not bring us to our knees but to our feet as we cry out to God to make things right. Hate is often the first sign that we care. And in the Psalms, Prayer doesn't legitimize hate. It uses it. In Psalm 76, the psalmist says, Surely the wrath of men shall praise you. you know, it's the same way with pain, physically. When you have a pain, it's sort of an indication that something is wrong okay, and that you need to take care of it. And It's not a promising first step, but it is a first step to bringing about health and wholeness. And we just heard an example today in the time of prayer of something, feeling something and then going to uh, the doctor and then finding a the fact that it was more serious than was originally believed. So pain has its function. And human hate is the same way. It's a step. It's again, not a very promising first step. But it is the first step toward righteousness and saying, there's something seriously wrong here that needs to be dealt with. When we pray our hate these are the first steps into the presence of God where we learn that he in fact is dealing with things. He has ways of dealing with things. And we bring these things to his attention though he already knows about them but we now become aware of them. But until we are in prayer I think we're not teachable. Let me stop a minute and just say this. I think it is better to pray badly than not to pray at all. And we might say, well, you know, I really don't want to pray my hate because that sounds terrible, but it is the first step. It is the first step of recognizing that there is in fact something wrong, that there is something evil. I think we prefer to be at our best. We come into God's presence in our Sunday go-to-meeting clothes if you wish. We want God to see us as nice people. And so we certainly don't want to say anything negative. We don't want to use the four-letter word hate. You know, We want to be nice people. And Psalm 137 seems to start out that way. But then without any warning, suddenly this chasm, this crevasse between us and God, if you wish, that hate sort of opens up this, this, this great gulf between us. It's easier, I think, to be honest with God in praise. It's a bit more difficult to be honest in our pain. It's almost impossible to be honest with God in our hate. Because we try to put that behind us and sweep it under the rug. We try to suppress it. We don't express it in prayer when we're talking to God. But when we pray the Psalms, these classic prayers written by God's people, we find that hiding it or suppressing it will not do. And they certainly didn't do it because we read about it here. We must pray who we actually are, not who we think we are or who we want to be. The way of prayer is not to cover up our unlovely emotions, if you wish. One writer put it this way. It is an act of profound faith to entrust one's most precious hatreds to God, knowing that they will be taken seriously. Psalm 137 isn't the only outbreak of hate in the book of Psalms. Again, as Eugene Peterson put it, there's hardly a page of the Psalms that isn't left smoking by pungent curse. Um, Just a few examples in Psalm 10, break the arm of the wicked and evil man. Psalm 21, you will aim at their faces with your bows. Psalm 53, God scattered the bones of those who attacked you. Psalm 58, break the teeth in their mouths, O God. Psalm 139, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. See, the psalmists at times are angry people. And in the time of prayer, they come to recognize the world is not a benign place where everyone is doing their best to get along with everyone else. That if we all just tried a little harder, things would be wonderful. In their prayers, they come to see that what they read in Genesis 3 about the battle, the enmity between Satan and the woman's seed is in fact in full bloom and that there is evil at work in the world. I think we are easily fooled by evil because it rarely looks like an enemy. Consider the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness. Uh, Provide bread for hunger. Well, that sounds nice enough. Furnish a miracle to encourage belief. Many people look for a miracle so that they can believe acquire powers that can be used that could be used to establish a just society unfortunately for satan jesus had been in prayer for 40 days and nights so he saw through he saw what evil was he saw through the polite and plausible offers his prayers gave him discernment and he identified these options as wrong these are wrong they are enemies And when he emerged from the wilderness, he came to do battle, not to negotiate. Listen to a passage that we might, again, want to excise, to edit out. This time it's in the New Testament. It's in the Gospels. And Jesus is speaking. I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is completed. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. If you read the Gospels, you will hear Jesus calling Peter Satan. And referring to the Pharisees as vipers on their way to hell. He calls down woes on the head of religious leaders who make themselves comfortable, make a comfortable living at the expense of oppressing the weak and exploiting the poor. And Jesus, as he's going to Jerusalem to be put to death, as he approaches Jerusalem, he uses a word that appears only one time in the New Testament, but it comes from Psalm 137. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. They will dash you to the ground. You might say, "Okay, I'm really confused because I thought we were supposed to love our enemies. We just went through part of the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said that you've heard that it was said, love your your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's true. But loving your enemies presupposes that you know who they are. That you have begun to identify them. Enemies for the people of God are a fact of life. We may not like to admit it, but it is true. And if we don't know that we have them or who they are, We live, I think, with a dangerous lack of discernment. When we pray, deliver us from evil, what are we we praying if, in fact, we don't know what evil is or who our enemies are? The enemies that Jesus loved and prayed for, in fact, put him to death. Our hate is used by God to bring the enemies of life and God to our awareness. And then it brings us into a life, into an act of compassion for those who are the victims of that evil. Once we get involved, then this is what we find. That hate is the spark. In a motor, it's the spark from the spark plug. It gets the engine going. But it is not the fuel to keep the motor running. I'm not good with engines, but I hope you follow the analogy, that you, for the motor to turn over, it needs that spark. And that's what hatred can be. But we are not to run on hatred. Love is the only sufficient fuel to keep our engines going. But we shouldn't focus, I think, only on love and say, we're supposed to love everyone. Uh, wait a minute, if we pray for our enemies, what was it that the psalmist prayed here? that they would be destroyed and their children as well. It is our anger, if you wish, our hatred that gets us into prayer. But it is by God's grace that we continue with love. We shouldn't imagine that if we pray for our enemies and if we love them, that they will suddenly become our friends. Oftentimes love is the last thing that our enemies want. As I said, Jesus prayed for his enemies and they put him to death. We are to be vulnerable, we are to be forgiving, that is to be our response. But we are to be people of prayer, and we are even to pray our hate. If you would, turn to Psalm 109, and I want to close by reading this psalm. For those of you familiar with um, the New Testament, it is from Psalm 109 uh, that, the, that the disciples decide to replace Judas because he's committed suicide. He, he uh, betrayed Jesus. And now there's 11 instead of 12. And you have the 12 tribes of Israel. You need the 12 disciples. And they actually quote, um, let's see, from... Um, Verse number 8, may another take his place of leadership. But let's begin at verse number 1 and see this as a prayer. O God, whom I praise, do not remain silent, for wicked and deceitful men have opened their mouths against me. They have spoken against me with lying tongues. With words of hatred they surround me, they attack me without cause. In return for my friendship they accuse me, but I am a man of prayer. And I don't know if you have a remark in your Bible, but this is something you could underline. I am a man of prayer. I think in the ESV it has another translation that says, I am prayer. Okay. So this is great. I'm a man of prayer. And then what follows? They repay me evil for good and hatred for my friendship Appoint an evil man to oppose him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him be found guilty, and may his prayers condemn him. May his days be few. May another take his place of leadership. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from their ruined homes. May a creditor seize all he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his labor. May no one extend kindness to him or take pity on his fatherless children. May his descendants be cut off, their names blotted out from the next generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord. May the sin of his mother never be blotted out. May their sins always remain before the Lord, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. For he never thought of doing a kindness, but hounded to death the poor and the needy and the brokenhearted. He loved to pronounce a curse, may it come on him. He found no pleasure and blessing, may it be far from him. He wore cursing as his garment, it entered into his body like water, into his bones like oil. May it be like a cloak wrapped about him, like a belt tied around him, or tied forever around him. May this be the Lord's payment to my accusers, to those who speak evil of me. But you, O Sovereign Lord, deal well with me for your name's sake. Out of the goodness of your love, deliver me. For I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. I fade like an evening shadow. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees give way from fasting. My body is thin and gaunt. I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they shake their heads. Help me, O Lord, my God. Save me in accordance with your love. Let them know that, this, that it is your hand that you, O Lord, have done it. They may curse, but you will bless when they attack, they will be put to shame, but your servant will rejoice. My accusers will be clothed with disgrace and wrapped in shame in a cloak. With my mouth, I will greatly extol the Lord, and the great throng I will praise him. For he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save his life from those who condemn him. Let's pray together. Our Father, Somehow we imagine ourselves to be better than we are. And even when we think of ourselves as being sinners, we still sort of reserve a part of us that we think is not that bad. And so as we come into your presence, we think that we come as basically good people who have done some wrong things. And we imagine that we can hide from you our anger, our hatred. Part of that, I think, is because oftentimes our hatred is wrong. We've not listened to you. We've not listened to your word in the conversation. We've begun the conversation ourselves. We've made the judgments ourselves. And so we're were hesitant to talk about such negative things. I thank you for the psalmist who wrote these psalms, and for the men who put them together, for their courage to be honest and to acknowledge their hatred of that which is wrong. There is much here, I think, that is beyond our understanding at this point. But open our hearts to see the truth of prayer. That you began a conversation and we respond, or we should respond in prayer. And we should pray all things, even our hatred. Thank you for bringing us here together today. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name.